News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn here with Professor Christina Greer elsewhere in Brooklyn. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Alex Brooklyn is not here this week. Um, she's in Manhattan uh, dealing with some stuff, some newsy stuff you may be hearing about very soon. We're in this very weird, interesting pause where we have the, uh, the first election results, all the in-person voting. Eric Adams looks very strong. A lot of uh, more progressive Democrats in this fight that's taking place entirely within the Democratic Party look very strong down ballot. But we don't know all that much yet because we're waiting on what could be as many as 200,000 absentee ballots to arrive by next Tuesday and then get counted before we even start the ranked choice process. Chrissy, you were saying when last we recorded Wednesday morning at 1 a.m. to uh, beware of the national hot takes. Oh, they're so terrible. So fast and furious. <laughs> they didn't listen I just, to No, <laughs> But I, I beg, please listen to me. You may be great at talking about Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the distinctions within the New York or the, the National Democratic Party. That's fine. But if you don't understand the nuance of New York City and how race and class and history and neighborhoods intersect and intertwine, I need you to sit this one out. There are plenty of people who know what the hell they're talking about. You may not be one of them. So random conversations linking all the black people together. That's not a helpful conversation because it actually doesn't make sense. Right. Alvin Bragg is not Eric Adams. Eric Adams got like 10 votes in Manhattan. Alvin Bragg looks like he's going to be the Manhattan DA. Right. Their path looks nothing like Jumani's and the elections that he's had to keep running year after year after year, the coalitions that he's building, very different coalitions than, say, Eric Adams. Tish James has a totally different base. Vanessa Gibson has a totally different base. So these, and to say nothing of all the sweeping, the city council members, and when we add in Afro-Latinos to the mix with Reynoso. So I just feel like there are a lot of folks whose editors are like, you write about politics, write about this really complicated race. Don't. Tell them. It's not my skill set. Maybe we should hit somebody up who's been following this race really closely and knows about New York City and not national politics. They are not the same thing. And that's where my frustration lies. I keep, <laughs> I was on a show, won't name the show. Someone kept calling Catherine Garcia the progressive in the race. Sir, settle down. You know nothing. Another conversation was, Catherine Garcia, you know, the top Latina in the race. Again, you don't know what you're talking about. Let's not do it. So just make sure, dear listeners, that when you read these takes, you're actually reading them from journalists and reporters and folks who have been actually studying and looking at this stuff. Because if not, we're making these causations and causalities and correlations that don't exist. And it's not helping us figure out the future of New York, let alone what just happened in the past six months. This is a good moment to defer to lukewarm takes. We <laughs> think 
this thing might happen, but we're not sure, and we're going to have to see all the breakdowns before saying what it means. The people who want the sweeping declarations now, watch out, which, by the way, takes us to the self-proclaimed new face of the Democratic Party, (laughs) Eric Adams, who who is doing a pseudo-victory lap right now, where he's uh, presented himself that way and says that, that, that... Taking a little bit of a swipe, I think, at Maya Wiley, that that we need candidates with uh, rough hands and uh, cool outer borough accents and, like, (laughs) men like him and Joe Biden who understand Says Harry Siegel with the coolest – wait, says Harry Siegel with the coolest accent in 21st century New York. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a big declaration to make before before the votes are counted. Is he just trying to fill the space to ensure that no one else does? Is he taking a premature victory lap? Like, what's he doing? Well – you know, in my family, Harry, we don't take victory laps until we have crossed the finish line. That's just, that's who we are. So when you've got thousands upon thousands of outstanding absentee and affidavit ballots, uh, I think, you know, some candidates are like, well, if I keep saying it, if I keep saying I'm the winner, then, I, then I'll just miraculously be the winner with all these outstanding ballots. And the press will follow suit. I mean, you know, he's, he's making his run of the shows and it's like, yeah, you're the presumptive winner. And it is very difficult for Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia to catch up, but it's not impossible. So until it's impossible, I, you know, I drive slow, homie. Like, I don't just sort of count these chickens when they are so not ready to hatch. But I think Eric Adams is essentially like, listen, the people have spoken. It may not be the people who normally speak. So... I think what's what's going to be the fascinating ride is all of the good liberals in New York who are used to getting their way and who have gotten their way under de Blasio and Bloomberg low-key. He's like, guess what? I'm not saying I'm kicking you off the table, but you're going to have to scoot over and there are going to be some people at this table that you have not seen before, some people at this table who've never been at the table before, and you're just going to have to deal. And also, I think this is where I, the good liberals are going to be apoplectic. Eric Adams is very... I, I'm really excited about this ride. <laughs> a little a little nervous, but excited. Because I do think that it's gonna make it's gonna force us to have some conversations we've never had before. And we definitely didn't have them in under the de Blasio era. But I know Eric Adams is gonna look at a lot of folks who were sort of the Bloomberg de Blasio voters, which there's a significant overlap, and he's gonna say, You didn't get me here. So like don't roll up on me with your handout or demanding I behave or do a certain thing. When I don't technically owe you anything and you've never gotten me where I needed to be. So you get in where you fit in and stand in line for possibly for the first time in your life politically on a local level, because we know that the first time for many people was Donald Trump. So, yes, I'm a little nervous (laughs) about a host of things with Eric Adams, you know. It should not be a complicated question. Do you live in New York or not? Like these aren't these aren't hard questions. Um. But I do think it is going to open up a real discussion for the political class in the city where somehow they wake up and looks like the outer boroughs have elected a mayor. And they're just like, but wait, what? <laughs> like, he doesn't he doesn't care that, you know, <laughs> I want more bike lanes today. And It's like, no, you'll get your bike lanes when I feel like giving you your bike lanes. But for right now, it's not a priority. So I think that's going to be a fascinating interplay. And also it'll be interesting to see who he puts in his his cabinet inner circle deputy mayors to surround him. Is he going to be a little conciliatory and, and extend olive branches and have, say, progressive wings, you know, around him just to give him a little feedback? 
Or is it going to be the OK Corral and we're going to have a whole bunch of brass knuckles folks who are just like, yeah, we fight until we get tired and then we go to Jersey. It's going to be interesting. This is a uh, a new coalition. Mm-hmm. And that does mean new seats at the table and, and some of the people have been very comfortable in their positions there. I think you're right. They're not gonna they're, they're not gonna leave the table, but they're gonna be feeling squeezed. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of voices who uh, we didn't hear from in certain ways, we just got through this whole mayoral election, and it's all over now for the primary. But the counting, the county's gonna take a minute. Be patient. This whole election cycle, without really any talk about the next pandemic, or God forbid, a revival of this one. Um, I spoke earlier this week with a return guest now, Emma Goldberg, about her new book, Life on the Line, which is not touching on the political part of this at all, but is a real visceral look Mm. of what this pandemic felt like for young medical students who became doctors a little sooner than they would have otherwise to get to work right when the wave was rising in New York. She detailed that in the New York Times, and now in this uh, pretty remarkable new book. Let's jump right in. So it's great to welcome back to the pod Emma Goldberg, who's a reporter and researcher for the New York Times and the author of Life on the Line, Young Doctors Come of Age in a Pandemic. Emma, hello. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be back, Harry. It's it's great to have you. So so I was just raving to you. I, I don't get into hype mode all that often. Usually I'm in grouchy mode. Uh, right before we started recording about how much I love this book and uh, felt like, you know, all of us had such different pandemics. And the, this gave me a, a visceral sense of, of how these young doctors, right, in fact, soon to graduate medical students, basically, who are, who are going out and, and doing this work amidst all of this uncertainty, what they were experiencing and what things were like uh, within New York's hospitals uh, in, in the course of the pandemic and the peak it did, and then what their own lives were like sort of past that, you know, uh, what they were thinking about, what they could tell their families and what they couldn't and and all of that. So maybe we could start off, you could just tell us a bit about how you came to write this book, your earlier reporting for The Times and the uh, scope of it. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it's it's still surreal and exciting getting to talk with people who have actually read the book because for a while it was just, you know, in that little bubble of my editor and I. So I really do appreciate that. And it's a joy to be here. Um, and I felt really lucky to get to report and write this book at the time I did because it was a moment in New York that was really just filled with fear and anxiety for so many people. Um, I, I really viscerally remember last spring, the moment when the, the city just kind of fell eerily silent and the streets were just empty. The hospitals were full. And at least for, for me in my Brooklyn apartment, really all I heard all day were the sound of sirens. And there was a kind of paralysis for journalists in particular, because you know this better than most, we're used to being out there reporting on the streets. And instead, everyone was sent back into their homes. 
And there was this sense that there was so little we could do and so much that was unknown. And so I felt really privileged getting to follow a particular group of young people who were doing something really valuable, really constructive at this moment of paralysis. And in particular, it was really powerful for me to connect with this group of six young people who were all around my own age and were able to sort of be catapulted onto the front lines. They were willing to put their their own health and their own um, really bodies at risk, and they were doing everything they could to serve the city. So for me, that was a really powerful story. It was one I first reported on for the New York Times and then decided to keep following in book form. So tell us a little bit about these six doctors and what made them stand out for you and what makes them a little unique sort of in the progression of American medicine? Absolutely. Well, I was really curious to capture a sort of group of doctors who represented in different ways the new face of American medicine and a new approach both to to medicine and to building patient-doctor relationships. And each of the doctors who I followed, I think, represent in some ways some of the changing norms in the new generation of American doctors. Um, one is a first-generation American, and her parents grew up with a lot of skepticism and raised her with a lot of skepticism of the U.S. healthcare system. One is a, a young Orthodox Jewish woman who is really grappling with questions of how her faith um, intersected with her medical care. Another was a young um, gay man who grew up with uh, some degree of trauma from the stories he learned of the way the U.S. healthcare system and frontline providers approached medical care during the AIDS crisis. So each one of them kind of brought a different sensibility and a different aspect of their own identity into their medical care. Another one is a young um, Hispanic woman, and she grew up knowing that people in her community were highly underrepresented in the American medical system. And she even grew up with some people telling her not to bother pursuing medicine because it wouldn't work out for her. So each of them had a real kind of deep personal commitment to the sort of work that they were doing, and particularly to serving the underserved during the pandemic. So I think in a minute we're going to get to one of the doctors, Jay, and you could say a bit more about her. But before that, can we step back for a second? Can you give a capsule history? Uh, there's some of this in the book, and it's, it's fascinating because a lot of this is really a narrow view of what each of these doctors is seeing at the time. And then you have these setbacks that, that sort of offer this much broader context, but about credentialing in American medicine and how that relates to the groups that have been underrepresented within it? Um, that's a, a great question. I'm, I'm glad that you raised it because I was fascinated to learn in the course of doing the research for this book that um, the kind of homogeneity of American medicine today was not a kind of accidental thing that came out over time. It was really baked into the system, into the American medical system by design. And a lot of this came about in the early 1900s when there was a major effort that stemmed largely from the American Medical Association to reform the field and to make it in some ways more elite. And this really came about through a report called the Flexner Report that was written up by an educator named Abraham Flexner. And he looked at every single medical school in the U.S. and he decided um, too many of them were subpar. A lot of them should be shut down and there should be fewer medical schools, fewer doctors, and the doctors that remain should be of 
what he saw as a certain kind of pedigree, which ended up meaning whiter and wealthier. So a lot of the black um, medical schools in the U.S. shut down. A lot of the rural medical schools shut down. A lot of the medical schools that trained people from lower income communities shut down. And what you got coming out of that effort was um, an American medical system that looked a lot whiter and wealthier, sort of the way it does today. And was that done to make it whiter or wealthier? What what was the reasoning at the time behind uh, limiting the number of people and the sorts of people who could enter? At the time, the argument was made that there were too many kind of proprietary and, and not very good medical schools that weren't really rigorous in their training. And there was a massive wave of medical schools that opened all across the U.S. in the 1800s. It was much more egalitarian than the system in Europe which was really restricted by these very elite medical societies. So there was a big push from some of the elite physicians in the U.S. to say we need fewer doctors and we need doctors who are better trained. In some cases, they had a point that some of the training um, wasn't that rigorous and could stand to be a little stronger and a a little better. But in other cases, um, that was sort of an effort to make the field kind of more prestigious and more highly paid. And you did start to see wages for doctors rise throughout the early 1900s as the number of physicians in the U.S. fell. Shifting gears for a second, just a couple of small takes in the book I I really want to get to just while we're talking. So you have this mixtape, in effect, on page 214. I had not known about this. Possibly it's been reported of these songs each hospital played when a uh, COVID patient was being uh, either extubated or discharged. And, you know, thinking about this, I, I would just like your, your rankings here. I, for instance, I, I would be heartbroken to get through everything and then, and then have uh, Don't Stop Believing play. <laughs> that would be, yeah, real adding insult to injury. <laughs> that, that was, I loved um, hearing that from some of the doctors because it was such a grim time in the hospitals. You know, all of them were saying all you heard all day were codes and you do not normally hear that many code blues in the hospital. And I think it was a real bomb for some of them to be able to wait for those moments when they heard, um, you know, whether it's Jay-Z or sadly, whether they, whether it had to be Journey, um, whatever the artist was, whatever the song, it was just these bright spots. And you actually saw some of them making TikTok videos that went viral where they'd be dancing to uh, Empire State of Mind or, or whatever it was. And it was just these bursts of joy in the midst of um, some pretty grim days in the hospital. How much reporting were you able to do in person, uh, first for the Times and, th- and then working on the book? And how much of this was just th- these doctors at the end of these incredibly long days taking the time to uh, share with you over the phone? Uh, just take us through how your reporting worked here. It was predominantly, um, much of it was done over the phone. And, and that was because um, I could not get access to the hospitals and they were really, really strict about limiting um, the number of journalists who were allowed in. And I think uh, I, I did understand, you know, the rationale behind that because the patients couldn't even have visitors in the room. You know, in most cases, they couldn't even have their family members there. So they were just trying to keep the number of people in the hospital halls down to a minimum. And it was actually really fascinating because I got to know these doctors so well over the phone that by the time I actually could come into the hospital and spend time with some of them, it was actually a little surreal to be standing next to these people whose voices I knew so well, but I didn't know how tall they were or, you know, what some of them, whether they had tattoos or how they dressed. It was, it was kind of a, a shock to the system after 
speaking to them so extensively over the phone that I finally was able to get to spend a little bit of time with them in person. And, and it was also a relief just to be able to have some return to normalcy as, as the COVID census in the hospitals declined. So that's a nice transition, I think, into Jay, who's one of the six doctors you followed. And there's an account in the book that you're going to read in a minute about one of Jay's patients, a man who in the book is called Manny. I think you were telling me that the hospital is not identified and Manny is a pseudonym for patient privacy reasons. Uh, but t- tell me a little bit, uh, t- or tell our listeners, please, a little bit about Jay and uh, who she is, how she came to medicine, and uh, her experience as you detail it. And people should pick up the book and read the whole thing over the pandemic. Yeah, uh, getting to know her and her story was definitely one of the most touching parts of reporting this whole book, because I think she is one of the doctors I followed who in particular just went above and beyond working longer than her 10 or 12 hour shifts because she was so devoted to bringing her patients the highest level of care that they could possibly get, particularly when a lot of them didn't have family members in the hospitals. And she is a young woman who is actually um, going into a combination of internal medicine and pediatrics. So she's really interested in working with young children. Uh, she is, is from New York originally, and she was actually going to be leaving New York to do a residency outside, but she stayed when the pandemic hit so that she could work in the COVID wards um, as they were so overwhelmed. And she had one of the most powerful stories I found of the whole book. So you, you, you tell this really powerful story about Jay in the course of the book. And I was hoping, we haven't done this on the pod before, uh, that you might give us uh, that story, this excerpt uh, from the book for our listeners, if you'd be game to do that. I would be happy to do that. Thanks so much for, for thinking of that. This is from chapter 12. Some days faded together, a haze of charts and codes and high-pitched calls. Then there were moments so vivid they might have been taped and replayed on a loop in Jay's head. The week she met Manny was one of those. It was a slow morning. Jay was hunched over her computer in the workroom. When she heard shouting in the hallway, she sprang up and ran outside, looking for its source. There was a Hispanic patient with Down syndrome wearing the hospital's typical striped blue gown, who was ripping binders off the nurse's station and throwing them on the ground. Stop, one of the nurses yelled, frantically grabbing the binders off the ground and setting them back in their place. What are you doing? Stop. Her pleas went unacknowledged. The thud, thud, thud continued as the patient dropped reams of paper. He was wailing, his cries mounting to a crescendo that flooded the hospital hall. A second nurse appeared and shushed the first. He does this when he's frustrated, she said. Don't worry. She put out her hand. The patient eyed her outstretched arm warily, then grabbed it. Slowly, he followed her back toward his room. That was Manny, whom the doctors called by his first name, unlike many of the other patients. He was slight, just five foot two, with dark hair, thick brows that curved downward, and a five o'clock shadow on his chin. He often got emotional and sometimes disruptive, but usually all he wanted was touch, someone he trusted to grab his hand. Quickly, willingly, Jay would assume that role. 
She would later learn all its technicalities. Like when Manny got agitated, some of the doctors gave him psychotropic medications, which were given pro-renata as needed. But others held back because each time he was given these drugs, they were documented in his records and could decrease the chance that a group home for the developmentally disabled would take him in. Often, he didn't need medication so much as some soothing words. The patient was assigned to Jay's care that week, and she heard his story in hushed conversations with nurses on the floor. Manny was 38. He came to the hospital when his father, who was his only living immediate family member, was admitted with COVID-19, riding over with him in the ambulance. Manny's dad soon coded with his son at his side and was put on a high-flow nasal cannula in the ICU. The hospital bent its rules on visitors and allowed Manny to stay. There was no one else who could watch him. Manny's mother had passed away a few years earlier. He and his dad had been living in a city housing project with little connection to the outside world. Now Manny spent his days seated by his dad's hospital bed. The nurses searched his face, wondering how much of the situation he could comprehend. His dad communicated with him in Spanish, so they weren't sure whether Manny could pick up on much of their English. Is there anyone we can call to care for Manny if something happens to you? The social worker asked Manny's father one afternoon. Manny's dad shook his head. I've always planned on outliving him. One night, around 4 o'clock a.m., his dad's heart stopped. The doctors rushed in and tried resuscitation with Manny lying there in the room. They did everything they could to no avail. Manny's dad was declared dead. The overnight staff wrapped up his body and prepared it for delivery to the morgue. Shortly after, Manny was swabbed, tested positive for coronavirus, and admitted to the hospital as a patient. Manny was put on one-to-one -one care, meaning he always had a staff member with him. Down syndrome, a condition caused by an extra copy of chromosome 21, can cause a variety of disabilities, but Manny's were severe. Some of the hospital's doctors and nurses were frightened by his tantrums. The psych resident who worked with him reminded the others to show him empathy and not to get upset when he threw things on the ground. Gradually, Manny became a favorite among the hospital staff. He was affectionate. When a nurse or doctor spoke to him patiently, he grabbed their hands, his warm eyes opening like a welcome mat. Be patient, the other providers warned Jay when he was assigned to her. Don't take it personally when he acts out. But all Jay could think about was the relief on Manny's face when the nurse in the hallway took him by the hand. Jay wasn't too nervous about caring for him. She stopped by Manny's room to introduce herself. He was propped up in his small bed, which was just slightly wider than him. His room was sparse. A wall painted a washed out robin's egg blue, a single brown plastic chair. There were a few toys scattered around, a plush football, a stuffed duck, donated by the hospital staff. One of the doctors had brought him a mini basketball hoop and his social worker, Alicia, had brought him Dora the Explorer books. Hola, Manny, Jay said. Soy su doctora nueva. He swiveled his head and eyed her cautiously. She moved toward his bed and put a hand on his shoulder. To her surprise, he didn't shake it off. Later, 
Just before her shift ended, Jay stopped by Manny's bed to say goodbye for the evening. He was sitting up and crying quietly, clutching an ID badge on a string around his neck, which he kept looking at while his eyes welled up. Jay stepped toward him and he angled the badge so Jay could see the photo fixed to the back of it. Pappy, Manny said, pointing at it. It was a snapshot of him and his dad. The two were wearing matching shirts, white with blue stripes like Yankees uniforms. That night on the way home, Jay thought about Manny lying in his hospital bed alone, fighting to fall asleep and fighting off thoughts of his dad. Then she called her mom. Manny loved to dance. In the hallway, when he went for a stroll, the nurses played Spanish pop artists like Selena or Enrique Iglesias on their iPhones, and he drummed his hands like he was hitting a snare. From the corners of his mask, Jay could see his lips turning up into a grin as he grooved. Manny's medical records marked him nonverbal. In their first days together, the only words Jay heard him say was, Poppy, when he looked at pictures of his dad. Or, no, usually responding to nothing in particular. They couldn't exchange sentences, but they found other ways to communicate. He pointed at objects around the room, and Jay offered a running commentary in Spanish. Because Manny had recovered from COVID and had antibodies, Jay didn't have to worry about holding his hand or letting his head rest on her shoulder as he napped. Jay was beginning to understand that some patient-doctor relationships are sewn of a fabric thicker than words. It was a trust spread through time, but mostly through effort. Jay wanted them to be close. Manny could tell. When her shift was over and her tasks done for the day, she came to Manny's room and took him on walks around the floor. The cap on resident work time, 80 hours a week, was lifted for the COVID months. So by the time Jay got to the floors, her coworkers were exhausted, frayed by crisis and grueling shifts. She was still fresh, ready to give the sort of deep care that Manny needed. Manny healed quickly from his case of COVID, which wasn't severe, but his release from the hospital wasn't straightforward. When he first turned up, he'd been in his father's care. Since his dad died, he had no one to speak for him. The possibility of going home to his former life had died with his father. One of the hospital's head social workers, Alicia, was working on developing a safe plan for his discharge. There were complex questions involved. Where would he live? Who would make his medical decisions? Alicia, fair-skinned and dark-haired, was a fiercely intelligent woman who spoke in high-voltage sentences, her every command charged with urgency. She was petitioning for an emergency court hearing so Manny could be appointed a legal guardian, and she had also begun filing applications for him at New York group homes for people with developmental disabilities. This was a complicated process at any time, but even more difficult during the pandemic. The homes were wary of interviewing someone who had just spent a month at a COVID-heavy hospital. Most of them had a wait list of two or three years, though Alicia had learned that some had unexpected openings because of residents who had died from COVID. One of the homes with an opening was in Corona, Queens. They arranged for Manny to come interview in person on a Wednesday afternoon. Before leaving the hospital, Jay and Alicia changed into clean scrubs and new masks, sanitized their hands, then called an Uber with one of the hospital's psychiatrists and a patient care assistant. Manny was delighted to be outside, 
After five weeks in a hospital bed, New York streets can seem like the promised land. The windows of the red brick buildings along First Avenue glinted in the afternoon sunlight. There was the bodega across the street, the liquor store with its neon red and blue wine and liquor sign, the yellow awning of Discount City. There was the little silver cart that sold lukewarm coffee and bacon, egg and cheese rolls. The block was tucked into the calm that came from quarantine. All its usual late lunchers and cell phone barkers shut in at home. Manny didn't seem to know where they were headed, but he was happy on the ride over. He gazed out his cab window at passersby as Jay made friendly conversation with Alicia, the psychiatrist, and the PCA. They arrived at a residential-looking brick building with a wrought iron gate and a wheelchair ramp outside. They were greeted at the entrance and deposited in a homey living room with a faded rug, a welcome departure from the cold linoleum of the hospital floors. As they were seated on a sofa, Manny seemed to realize that something formal was happening, and he balked. His eyes turned accusatory. Jay stroked his arm to keep him calm as he burrowed into the couch cushion. After some time, Manny stood and began to wander around the home, with Jay and the others following behind him. Nine of the home's residents were scattered around the dining room talking, and Manny sat down to watch them with nervous curiosity. Jay had forgotten what it was like to be in a room thrumming with social activity, one with no terse voices or respiratory machines. One of the group home residents spotted Manny and approached. He stuck out his hand to shake Manny's. Then the young man gestured toward a cluster of home residents nearby, as if to say, come join. Manny's face broke into a wide, genuine smile, the sort he usually had when he was grooving in the hallways. Jay had never seen Manny with peers. She only knew him in the context of his hospital room. There was a lightness to him as he bounced around the group. She was struck by the way geography can define someone, how a certain space can bring parts of our identities into sharp focus and leave others blurred. Back at the hospital, Manny was a patient or a social work case. Here, he was just another young person, looking happier than he had since Jay met him. Manny left the group at one point to climb the stairwell and poke his head into one of the bedrooms on the second floor. Jay could see the expression of desire, almost need, fixing on his face as he took in his surroundings. This place was a home. Two or so hours passed, and then Alicia gestured to her watch. It was time for them to leave. Manny's body went slack. His eyes fixed on the doctors, and he started shaking his head vehemently. Manny, we have to go back to the hospital now, Jay said. I know it was great meeting these new friends, but it's time to go back now. Manny backed away from the doctors. He continued to shake his head. No, no, no. In his head, he gripped the necklace with his father's photo like a shield, like an amulet. Pappy, he cried. The home's other residents were quickly whisked away. As the room emptied out, Jay felt the emptiness in Manny's life viscerally, the loss of his dad and his normal life. Jay, Alicia, and the psychiatrist tried coaxing him toward the exit. So did the group home staff, with whom he had bonded rapidly. One of the group home aides even offered to drive him back to Manhattan in her car. But none of their pleas worked. Manny did not want to leave. He kept ducking away from them, shaking, puncturing the air with shouts of, No! We're going to have to call an ambulance, the psychiatrist said quietly. They called 911, and an ambulance arrived in what was actually minutes, but felt interminable. Alicia begged the medics not to sedate Manny as they gathered around him. 
Manny burst into tears as he was lifted onto a stretcher. Jay finally had to look away. She kept seeing flashes of his proud smile when the first group resident came over to shake his hand. No, 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 he kept shouting as he was strapped down. Thanks for your time today, the group home director said to Alicia and Jay with a dose of distant pity. We'll evaluate his case and get back to you next week. Jay and Alicia exchanged a look, their eyes welling up. It seemed like they would be back to the drawing board on the plans for Manny's release. Manny wouldn't meet Jay's gaze that evening at the hospital. She tried everything, cheery greetings, an apologetic smile, a quiet stay sitting near his bed, but he just stared stone-faced at the wall. She could sense his message, traitor. After a few minutes, Jay left him to rest. The only currency that she and Manny traded in was trust, and it wasn't an inexhaustible supply. So so that's about the first half of, of Manny's story, and then it goes on, and then return to it a, a little later in the book, but uh, will you give us some sense, although obviously everyone listening should go and buy the book, of, of, of what happens with Manny from there and with Jay? Absolutely. Well, the hospital staff got really attached to him. Um, one of the PCAs actually even looked into the possibility of adopting him. Uh, and they, Jay learned more and more about him um, over the course of her weeks. So she actually discovered at one point that there was a whole file in his medical history that the team hadn't seen that indicated that he was actually hard of hearing. So they were able to get him fitted for hearing aids, and they were also able to get him on some medication, um, which was really helpful to him. So they were able to discover a lot more about his medical history, which was great. Right, and they they hadn't realized that he'd been on SSRIs like until he exactly. got to the hospital, and then he hadn't been the whole time they'd known him, and that he couldn't quite hear them largely because he was mostly deaf. Just speaking of, of seeing seeing some of person in focus and some of them blurry, and then, then having that snap. Yeah, it was really fascinating. And it was actually just because of a sort of technological snafu and his his medical history was in a different system than the hospital was using. So Jay was able to get them access to that. And then thankfully, he had been in the hospital for 100 days and then they were able to get him admitted to a group home um, in New York. And so he was able to, to finally leave the hospital and they threw him a little concert on his last day. And some of the doctors brought instruments and they were playing for him. So it was a really sweet scene. But actually, at that point, Jay had moved on and was already um, out of New York and in residency. So she just heard about this in updates from the other residents. I feel like reporters can relate to a little of this and being deeply immersed in someone else's life and story. And then, you know, just as your job function, moving on and and just sort of getting little snippets or updates, if even that. Exactly. It's a strange thing for Jay. She had been spending, you know, 10 hours a day caring for him and thinking about him. And then she just had to leave the hospital with no sense of where he would end up. And you're totally right. It's a similar thing with reporters. You know, we can stay in touch with our sources, but we definitely don't get that same feeling of being embedded in their lives. So so there's much more to the book, but maybe as our closing note here, the book sort of ends right when these guys are concluding their emergency surge. And, you know, you compare these medical doctors to military terminology a few times as they're, they're coming in this way. And then right as they're leaving, what is happening in New York? Right as they're leaving, you know, it was this beautiful moment when New York started to reopen. And then you actually had a kind of 
beautiful moment in which people started pouring into the streets protesting and the city was suddenly alive again but this time it was it was in protest and it was people rising up and marching and rallying for the black lives matter movement and then you also had um the pride march on top of that and it was really powerful i think for a lot of these doctors to participate in the movement because they had just seen a pandemic that was devastating communities of color at disproportionately high rates In the early weeks of the pandemic in New York, Black and Hispanic New Yorkers were dying at double the rate of white New Yorkers. And so you saw that happening. You saw a respiratory virus. They were saying they had patients who couldn't breathe. And then they heard this rallying cry of, I can't breathe, and people pouring into the streets to protest a very different kind of injustice and and a very different kind of crisis. And, And so a lot of them were really committed to being out there. And even though it felt strange for them to be in these packed crowds after weeks and months of social distancing, it also felt more critical than ever to be part of that, having just seen a virus that was devastating communities of color um, in, in their hospitals. Emma Goldberg, thank you again for joining us. The book is Life on the Line, Young Doctors Come of Age in, in a Pandemic. It's uh, It's really quite a read. Thank you so much for having me on, Harry. This was such a delight to get to be in conversation with you about it, uh, as always. Who is the uh, doctor on the cover, by the way? I was just curious if this was a stock photo or one of one of your doctors. Um, that is Gabriella, who is in the book. And this photo was taken um, by a friend of mine outside Bellevue Hospital. Uh, so we went to meet her. Well, she was actually working, and she ran down to meet us so we could take a photo. That's awesome. Emma, uh, thanks again. I hope we'll have you uh, back on as you you keep on reporting, and uh, we really appreciate uh, your work and your time. Thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, just so great to be with you, Harry. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, Emma Goldberg, New York Times reporter and researcher and author of Life on the Line, available now. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, be safe, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>